All right, good morning and welcome. We are uh, continuing this morning in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, please open it with me to John chapter 12, and we're going to begin in verse 20. Um, We're going to be looking at verses uh, 20 through 26 today. We'll we'll read these uh, verses once through, and then we can take a, a look at them closer together. John chapter 12, verse 20. This is the reading of God's living and active word. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Over this uh, past year, I've accumulated quite a collection of books on the Gospel of John. Some of them focus in more on the cultural context of the first century and some of the things that were going on in in, um, first and second temple Judaism, and um, while others just simply um, apply to the text itself. My favorite book so far is written by a man named James Montgomery Boyce, uh, Boyce. and um, the reason why I love it so much is he does an amazing job uh, mixing both context and application, but on top of that, he um, adds his own personal stories um, from having preached around the world for over 30 years, Um, and when I came to this section, uh, John chapter 12, verse 20, in his book, he writes about a number of um, pulpits that he was fortunate enough over the years to uh, preach at. And he talked about how each one had its own unique footprint to it. He preached at a pulpit that had nothing but, that was no, more than nothing but a stack of old hymnals. Some pulpits were held together, he said, by duct tape. He'd been at pulpits that even had a small sign on it that said, This service ends at 12 o'clock sharp with explanation points. One of them that he thought was rather humorous, it had a a two-minute warning clock on it, sort of like a football game that would suddenly pop on and tell him to wrap things up. I was actually somewhat scared to mention that one. But he said the one that was the most memorable by far 
was this little pulpit on the campus of uh, Stony Brook School in Stony Brook, Long Island. And uh, though this pulpit could have also been made out of old hymnals stacked up and may also have been held together by duct tape, he said every time he went there, he had never noticed such things on or around the pulpit because there was a quotation from the Bible which only the preacher could see as he stands and looks out at the congregation. It is a short quotation, but one that gets to the heart of the matter. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I can't think of a greater word for any preacher to see before he speaks. Far too often those who are called to preach get carried away with thinking we need gimmicks in order to keep the church interested and we get away from the power and the purity of the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ and Christ crucified. And in his letter to young Timothy, he instructed him, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Paul warned Timothy in verse 3, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. Paul will say in his letter to the Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The power to transform lives isn't in me tickling your ear with fancy jokes. It isn't in me trying to create a lesson that will be more popular with the, the masses. The power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Every week as I, I, I prayerfully prepare and study each week to preach, I ask the Holy Spirit, let them hear Christ. And I pray that your hearts are, are in the pews thinking, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Now, as we look at our text this morning, I broke it down into three simple parts for us. Uh, the first section is verses 20 through 22, where we see the hour. The Lord talks about the hour. The second is in verse 24, when Jesus talks about the cross. And then lastly, number three, we'll see in verses 25 to 26, the cost, the cost of the disciple. Um, now, in John chapter 12, we know that Jesus is in the last week of his public ministry. Luke said as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, um, Jesus resolutely um, set out toward uh, Jerusalem. Christ Jesus was born that he might die, that, that he might be a ransom for his elect. And so the focus of this chapter really begins to 
focus in and it narrows down almost like a, a telescope lens as the Lord Jesus Christ moves towards Jerusalem to die. Now, we co- closed last week in um, verse 19, which really becomes the launch pad for this week's text. Just look again at verse 19 with me. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 19 is the springboard into verse 20. The Pharisees are saying in 19, great, look, look at this. Now, now everyone is going after him. And then as if on cue in verse 20, here come the Greeks. The Greeks, the Gentiles. So let's get into this first section. I outlined in your notes the hour. And we'll cover verses 20 through 23 in this section. The hour. Look at verse 20. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Uh, The word now that begins verse 20 is is a great uh, transition word. Um, because it connects verse 19 with verse 20. And notice that they're at the feast. We know that this is the Passover. We saw this in verse 1 of chapter 12. Um, Now there's some irony in this text, and the irony is this, that at the same time that the Jews have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and its its leaders are seeking to kill the Lord Jesus The Gentiles are seeking after him. The irony is thick here in this verse, and I want to really drill down here uh, about the Greeks, the Gentiles, because this is an important point to the Lord's hour, the hour. So notice what John tells us. He introduces some Greeks who are among the crowd and who went up to worship at the feast. So these were most likely people who the Bible uh, refers to as God-fearers, all right? They are Gentiles who have abandoned their pagan religion and have turned to worship the one true God of Israel. An example of a God-fearer is um, the centurion in Luke chapter 7. Remember that story, his servant's sick and he believes the Lord uh, can in fact heal him. And Jesus will say, I tell you the truth, not even in Israel have I found such a faith as this. And, and Jesus heals the Gentiles' servant. Now, to understand the significance here, you must know that the Jews over the course of history had become incredibly inward-focused. Spiritual pride had certainly overtaken them by this point. They had become proud, thinking nationally. They were nationalists, Jewish nationalists. They were better than everyone else. They were, after all, God's chosen people. They had become prejudiced. In fact, remember, back in John chapter 4, when Jesus went to the woman at the well in Samaria, and the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? She had two things going wrong for her in the eyes of the Jews. She was a woman and she was from Samaria. And John added commentary for us that, that really helped us to understand this as Gentiles to what, in fact, she was saying. John adds, he says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Remember, they would, 
walk around Samaria if they could in order to get north into Galilee. So, while the Jews really didn't like the Samaritans, he, he, he really could have just, John could have just as well said, for the Jews have no dealings with any of those dirty Gentiles. <laughs> for there was the Jews and then there was everyone else. And I think it's probably good for us uh, to stop at this point and ask ourselves the same question today. Might we have areas in our own lives where we have become too narrow? Where we have the market cornered on Jesus and we're pr too proud to let them know who he is. I think it's something that we're all susceptible to in our sin nature. And certainly the Jews had done that where they looked down upon the Gentiles. Um, there was a Jewish prayer book, in fact, uh, from what I've read, it's still around. Um, and it had a classic line dating all the way back to the Pharisees. I praise God that I'm not a woman, and I praise God that I'm not a Gentile. That was their mentality. And so we see here that they had a disdain for the Gentiles, but the, the hour has come for the Gentiles that they will be grafted into the family of God. Now we know from the scriptures that God originally called, of course, Israel to be his chosen people. Uh, in fact, God created for himself a people. He created for himself a nation who would follow him. And when he did, he didn't do it to be the end of salvation, but he called the nation of Israel to be the means through to salvation. They were to be his witnesses, his representatives on earth. And we know that from the Abrahamic covenant from many places. But keep your fingers in John and just quickly turn to Genesis, nice and easy. Genesis chapter 12 for a moment. Um, this should be marked in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 12, the first couple of verses. Our, our focus will be on verse 3. Um, but for the context, let's start at the beginning of um, in verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, of course, this is before he was Abraham, Go from your country, your, ki your kindred, from, from your father's household. So, so God calls Abram, Leave your homeland, okay, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. See, there was no nation. God was to create for himself a nation through Abraham. The Lord said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now notice, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, God promised Abraham a land. Uh, yes, he promised him that his name would be great and that he would be blessed. But what he was saying is, is that you will be the seed through which all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And at the other end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, for you were slain, speaking of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by your blood you ransomed people for God 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so the scope of salvation has always been greater than just the Jews. God has an elect people, and when he sacrificially died on the cross, um, he did so for that group of people. Not a single drop of blood was wasted by the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for his own, whom he chose before the foundations of the world. So as we return to our text in verse 21, it says, So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly why they came to Philip. Um, some say it's because of the Greek, his Greek name. Um, they may have probably rather seen Philip in the courts of the temple of the Gentiles. Um, the Gentiles couldn't go any further in the temple courts. And so we're not sure. It doesn't tell us. But Philip, unaware of how to handle this, goes to Andrew. Now, think about it. His confusion was well, was well placed. Remember when Jesus went, sent out the 12, and this is one of his uh, early missionary um, missions, when he sent the 12 out two by two in Matthew chapter 10, and the Lord's instruction to them in verse 5, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he instructs them not to go to the Gentiles. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So um, I'm going to suspect, I'm sure, how to handle these Gentiles. Philip goes to Andrew, and he's probably thinking, I'm not sure what's going on here, but there's some Greeks here that want to talk to Jesus. Uh, regardless, Philip and Andrew decide, okay, well, we better go tell Jesus. Now, there's an interesting antidote here that I don't want us to miss, and I mentioned this um, back in chapter 1, but that was a year ago now. <laughs> so what, what's interesting about Andrew is every time that we see Andrew, we see him three times in all the accounts of the gospel. If I asked someone to stand up and give me five minutes on Andrew, you'd probably start shaking in your boots. We don't know much about this guy, but all three times that we see Andrew in Scripture, we see him doing one thing in particular. Does anyone remember what we see him doing? He's always bringing people to Christ in all three times. The first time was he went to go get his brother Peter. And he says, I have met the Christ, the Messiah. And he brings Peter, the Apostle Peter, to the Lord Jesus Christ. All three times, Andrew is bringing people to the Lord. And what a great lesson for us, just simply bringing people to the Lord. So in verse 3, these Greeks asked him to see Jesus. Now, uh, this is important uh, because this verb, ask, is in the continual sense, okay? Which means that they kept asking and asking and asking, <laughs> All right. In other words, they, they were not going to take no for an answer. They were going to see Jesus, and they weren't going to leave until they did. It's like going into your boss's office, and his secretary says, Oh, no, sorry, Nick, he is busy all day. He's got meetings stacked all through the day. You say, Okay, that's all right. I'll wait right here until he gets out. 
I'm going to speak to this man. All right? That's the idea of this text. They were not going to leave until they had a chance to see Jesus. Now, this word see doesn't just mean to visually be able to see in the physical sense. The idea of this word see is to attend to, to talk seriously with, or to interview, quite literally, personally. They wanted to know more than just the, the outward. They wanted to know him personally. And we have to ask ourselves this as well. Do we not only wish to see Jesus, but do we also want to know him? Yeah, we want to know who he really is. Reveal yourself to us. And the Apostle Paul's great goal in life was to know Christ intimately. I want to know Christ. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people in the world today, many who fill the church pews in the world, who know something about Jesus, but do they really know him? It is not a religion I want to be connected to. It's the person of Christ I need to be connected with. I must abide with Christ and him in me. It's, it's a daily living relationship. And so these men clearly, by the power of God, are being drawn to Christ, and they wanted to know, K-N-O-W, and one take N-O for an answer. And so we need to ask ourselves, do, do, do we wish to see Jesus in this way? Or are we like the crowd in the text last week that we saw were seeking after Jesus, and they were seeking after him in, his, in their own made image of who they wanted him to be? Now I want to finish up just what we started talking about earlier in that the Old Testament tells us that God's design has always been to save both the Jew and the Gentile. All right, because this truth is all throughout Scripture. And um, if you're a student of the Old Testament at all, um, we always see a remnant as we see through it. For example, we see in the book of Joshua a woman saved by faith named Rahab. Um, Rahab was, of course, the prostitute. Um, from the Canaanite city of Jericho, a Gentile who God uses uh, to hide the two spies up on the flat of the roof. And they agree to protect her and her family, but she must hang that scarlet rope, the scarlet thread out her window so the Israelites would know which home it was to spare. Ultimately, Rahab marries an Israelite from the very tribe of Judah, she later has a son, Boaz, who became the husband of Ruth. And if you follow the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew's gospel, you'll even see she is the direct descendant of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus Christ. She is grafted into the messianic line of our Savior. And what about Nahum, the, the, uh, the leper, <laughs> right? He was another Gentile. Actually, he was a, a commander of the uh, Syrian army. And when Elijah asked him to simply bathe in the Jordan um, seven times by faith, it was almost his pride that was his undoing. But he eventually did, and, and he was only then cleansed by doing what the Lord had said through Elijah, or else he wouldn't have been cleansed. We, of course, see it in Ruth, um, this um, Moabite who um, clung on to uh, Naomi, um, her mother-in-law, and she said, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. And then who can forget the whole nation of the Ninevites? And Jonah, 
the wretched people God called Jonah to preach to. Instead, Jonah tries running in the opposite way, and he tries to get on a boat and go to Turkish, um, but the Lord allows him to go overboard and get swallowed up by a fish. Well, eventually Jonah gets the message, and he ends up obeying God. He preaches to the people, and the Bible says the people turned from their evil ways and believed in God, Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, the prophet says, Later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And so, in a sense, that's what's happening that we see in John chapter 12. Paul in chapter 1 of Romans really lays out the whole theme of his book in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We read the first part earlier. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about the advantages that the Jews had. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in the circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they had been trusted with the the oracles, the very word of God. And he talks about the, the temple services and he goes into all the different blessings that the Jews had been given through the prophets and through Revelation. And then later on, you get to chapter 9 of Romans, he talks about the same thing. He says the Israelites, they, they had the adoptions, the uh, glory, the, the covenants. They had the giving of the law. They had the worship, the, the promises. Uh, they belong to the patriarchs, uh, the patriarchs of Israel. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Chapter 3 of Romans and verse 9 says, What then? What are Jews? Are, are we Jews any better off? Don't forget, Paul's a Jew. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if you read Romans 9 through 11, he spends a great deal of time talking about the fact that the Jewish rejection was the Gentiles salvation that that the Gentiles would be grafted in as a wild olive branch it says in Romans chapter 11 verse 11 Paul says so I ask did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means rather through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous uh, the rejection by the Jews opens the doors to the blessings uh, for the Gentiles. But don't make the mistake of thinking God's done with Israel. 
God's not done with Israel. Yes, primarily the church is being filled in the church age with Gentiles. But Paul also talks about future Israel in chapter 11. God's not done with Israel. He, he always has for himself a remnant according to his grace. And, and Paul's heart breaks for his Jewish kindred. Especially in chapter 9, he's, he, it's unbelievable. But he adds in verse 12 of chapter 9, Now if their trespass, speaking of the Jews means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, then how much more will their full inclusion mean? <laughs> what a glorious day it's going to be. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life? Powerful, powerful words by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul. So the point has been made. God has always had in view the Gentiles. In fact, when the Lord saved the Apostle Paul, he said in Acts 9, this man is my chosen instrument. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles. And then later in um, Acts uh, chapter 13, as Paul would uh, boldly go to the Jewish synagogues first to preach the gospel, after he had gotten rejected time and time again, he finally says in Acts 13 verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. And since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, thus fulfilling exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ said he would be, the apostle to the Gentiles. So it was always the plan of the Godhead. It, it, it was always the plan that the Gentiles would be grafted in as a wild olive shoot. And so Jesus knew that when the Gentiles came, now his hour had come. And that's the point of what John is pointing to here in verse 23. It says, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this idea of the hour is always in references to Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Um, we're going to see it twice in verse 27 of chapter 12. We're going to see it in uh, chapter 13, verse 1, and chapter 17, uh, verse 1. Uh, but if you've been with us, we've already seen this hour mentioned repeatedly. We saw it at the very first sign of Cana, Jesus' very first miracle at the wedding feast, turning the water into wine. And this is when he said to his mother, chapter 2, verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, we see him say to his brothers in verse 6, My time has not yet come. And then a little later in John chapter 7, as Jesus taught in the temple, it says, um, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
Well, now here we are in John chapter 12. The Gentiles come and Jesus will say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. My hour is at hand, right? This, this is now his time. And Jesus is speaking in triumph here, not in tragedy. He is resolute as he is heading to the cross. He has come to Jerusalem to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He knows that by the Gentiles coming, this is a sign in itself. And John is sure to point this out to us here. Paul wraps up this whole thought for us this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, when he says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that's the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, before we move on to this next section, notice, and I'm taking most of our time in the first section, so bear with me, but uh, uh, notice in verse 23 how Jesus refers to himself. There's so much packed into these three verses. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is, this is his favorite title. He uses it more than 80 times in the Gospels, and it's a window into his person. The title is drawn from Daniel's prophetic vision from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when Daniel says, I saw in the night's vision, see if I can get there, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's the title for God the Father, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That what people? That all peoples, what nations? Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, amen indeed. So Jesus said the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This word here, glorified, diaxio, in the Greek it means to glorify, to honor, to bestow glory upon. It speaks of the manifestation of God's divine majesty. And so God is most glorified in Christ through the cross. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus will say later on in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5, he will pray, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you, I love this, before the world was. You see the, the intimate Godhead existing from before time began. Everlasting, everlasting. Glorify me together with you, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Well, that was the hour uh, that has now come 
and that is only by way of the cross. So now we move to point number two in the cross. This points to the cross in verse 24. And that's exactly where Jesus goes upon meeting these Gentiles. He takes them right to the cross. And I might add real quick, it's a good rule of thumb for all of us when God creates a, an opportunity um, for us to meet someone that we have a divine appointment, appointment with, take them to the cross of Christ. Okay, don't waste your time talking about dinosaurs. You're a sinner. Jesus died for you. He's a miraculous savior. You need him. As quickly as possible, bring them to the foot of the cross of Christ. This brings us now to verse 24. And Jesus starts with the now familiar, truly, truly, I say to you. That means this is important. Listen up very carefully. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Um, now we know Jesus is the master teacher. <laughs> um, Jesus always taught his audience and used illustrations and examples that they could understand. Using this illustration of a planted seed and, and a harvested uh, crop, Jesus emphasizes the absolute necessity of atonement for sin. Okay, seeds, of course, are, are not dead. Seeds on their own are not dead. Sometimes they, um, the, the ancients, of course, knew this well. But unless they're buried in the soil, they won't produce any new life. They're just going to sit on the shelf. And this is the heart of this illustration. Jesus must die on the cross and be buried in order to bring about new life, fruit into the world. Jesus is saying, my atoning death, burial, and resurrection will bring forth a harvest of souls. Okay? Now, we can never imitate the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we can't cover the sin of others. Um, his death is unique um, because he's unique. He, he's 100% fully God and, and fully man and lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He, he's the, the, the mediator between God and man who takes away the sin of man. But as I mentioned last week, in the Lord's death, there is an example for us from when he comes riding in humbly on the donkey, right? Um, and Jesus is going to get to this in the next two verses, but during his short earthly ministry, Jesus is constantly dying to self and humiliating himself as he humbled himself to the will of the Father. And besides the cross, we see probably the most graphic example of that in John 13 when when Jesus un unrobed himself and, and girded himself as a slave and washes the feet of his sinful disciples. What, what, what greater picture do we have besides the cross of the, the lowliness and the servanthood of our Savior than that of Jesus Christ, cleansing the dirty feet of sinful men? And when we come to him in humble confession, he does the same for us, for he is faithful but in John 13, we see Jesus get up from the table. He, he lays aside his garments. He, he, gear, he girds himself with a towel. He pours water into the basin and begins washing his disciples' feet. And when Peter said to him, Lord, uh, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus said, Peter, if I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. And so Peter said, Lord, then, then wash not only my feet, 
but my hands and my head. Give me a bath. But Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. The Lord was saying, Peter, you've already been made clean. In other words, you've already been justified. You've been justified. But in, in sanctification, we need to come to him every now and then and wash our feet, the filth that, that attracts to our feet from the, the world. That's our servant here, bowing down, cleaning, serving. That's who Jesus Christ is. And he says in John 13, verse 15, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. The culmination of Jesus dying to self was literally when he laid his life down sacrificially on the cross. That's how he bore much fruit. Remember, as our Lord, dear, dear Lord hung on the cross, it says in uh, Matthew chapter um, 27 that, um, I don't know if I got that one. Um, he says in Matthew chapter 27 that those who passed by were wagging their fingers and their heads and said, uh, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the son of God, come down off that cross. And it says that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were mocking him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And the irony is that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't do. He had to die. He had to save his elect. Had he saved himself, we would still be dead in our sins. Philippians 2, 7 through 8, but he, Christ, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the fruitfulness that comes from dying, and he accomplished this in such humility, which is the ultimate manifestation of submission to the Father and refusal to seek his own glory. Christ accomplished all this by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Well, Jesus moves us now from the cross to the cost, the cost of discipleship. And that's exactly what he's going to do is the Lord Jesus Christ is going to give those who were standing there the cost to following him. And it's not going to be easy as he calls them to die. Let's look at the cost in verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now this is a very important point here. And to better understand it, sometimes I share word studies um, that I'll do on the text. The, the word that Jesus uses first here for life is the word suke. Whoever loves his suke loses it. All right, this word suke, it sounds uh, a lot in the, the English word like what? Psyche, psychology. This is where we get the English word from it. 
speaks of like the inner self, the, the inner person's identity of self, your unique individual personality. In other words, it's your ego. <laughs> uh, and, and it means I'm the captain of my own ship. Remember when we lived like this? I'm in charge of my own life. No one tells me what to do. And we have a world filled with that today, don't we not? A bunch of people doing things, pleasing their own wills. Why do we have so many divorces and, and ruined marriages? Because you have one person that wants to do their own thing, and you have another person wanting to do their own thing. Read in your bulletin later today. Pastor Rick points out what happens and, uh, when you have a godly husband and wife uh, who die to self and serve one, one another. That's what God has created and that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that, uh, that this uh, suke life, the one who lives for self, whoever loves his life, loses it. This is the cost. That part of us that, that must die. This is the part that, that we have to give up the self-will and we must submit to him. And let me just say this, that on our own, it's impossible to do. <laughs> You must be born again. It's impossible. We need the Spirit of God to intervene. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you're not going to do this on your own power. You're, you're not going to uh, want to do this on your own power. But, th but this is what Jesus is saying. That's, that's part of us that, that has to die. Now notice the second part of, of verse 25. Jesus continues, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So, so Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, removes your love of this life, that the suke, and replaces it with his eternal life, zoe. Remember, there's three different words used for life in the New Testament. This is now zoe. Uh, so we have new wants, new desires in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in John 10, where zoe comes in, I have come that they may have life, that's zoe, and have it abundantly or have it to the full, to the max. The divine life is what Jesus is talking about is life that only comes when our lives are surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, to His will and to His purposes. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. The selfless, humble, sacrificial life of Christ is the call every believer should long to follow. He says the person who loves their life will lose it. They will lose it. And it could not be otherwise, for to love one's life is, is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty. And quite honestly, a, a brazen elevation of oneself, which is idolatrous in nature and is at the heart of most sin. By contrast, the one who hates his life will keep it to eternal life. 
let's kind of talk quickly about how this really plays itself out. How do we really submit our lives to God? Well, first of all, as we've already seen in Romans, it's a work of the Spirit. <laughs> it's a work of the Spirit. But following that, there is a surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. And it's in the everyday things. This doesn't have to get all complex and write a list down. We submit to God's will by trusting in him, right? When we get the call from the doctors and your wife is sick and she can't go to work or your husband gets laid off, it's when things don't go the way I was hoping. It's not my plan. It's God's plan. And I'm immediately forced to what? To surrender to God's will. And that's in serving your wife. It's in the mundane. It's in the things of everything. Wives, submitting with your husbands. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm not submitting to my husband. I'm dying for my wife. <laughs> Couples, build one another up. Raise your kids with biblical principles. Put other needs before your own. This is the Christian life, Jesus says. You must lose your life in service and in witness in whatever I call you to do. I have a friend who says there's never a line to serve. <laughs> Nick, go, go find a line somewhere where, where there's service. It'll be empty. You'll be the front of the line. Amen? You're never waiting in that line. So this is what Jesus says to do. And so... Do we see him in this way? Do we see him humble riding in on a donkey? Do we see him as the servant humbled down cleaning his disciples' sinful, dirty feet? We can't dilute these words. We can't dilute what Jesus is saying here. Faith in Jesus involves dying to all the distractions, all the things of this passing world has to offer. In Luke chapter 17, verse 32, Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife? It's a second... Uh, Second uh, shortest verse in, in all of Scripture. Remember Lot's wife. It's worth our consideration. What did Lot's wife do? She lost her life. Because the Bible says she disobeyed and she turned back. She turned back. And the reason she turned back is because she longed for what was back there. Moses, Abraham, esteemed great riches. Moses didn't esteem the riches, though, in Egypt. He, he was looking for a more glorious city. That's the way the believer lives. We don't live for here. We live for there. And that's what Jesus is saying in Luke 17. He says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. You know, having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is, is not one where we don't come underneath the lordship of it. We don't give him a part of a, our life. The Lord wants all of it. In every true believer, there was a day when Nick died, when Katie died, when Don died, when Tom died, when Diane died. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31, the Apostle Paul says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. In Galatians 2, verse 20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So in John 12, verse 25, Christ's servant mandate. And now we'll close in verse 26. Christ is going to provide the, the servant's motivation. The servant's motivation. Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I want you to just notice first in verse 26 that Jesus is always swinging the door wide open. Wide open. Look at that word, anyone. Jesus says, if anyone serves me. The Lord wishes that, that none would perish, that, that all should come to repentance. The invitation is always open. Whosoever would believe and would receive it. Notice also the word serve. If anyone serves me, the word serve here is diakono. It's the same word we use in our English word for deacon, a deacon in the church. We know what a deacon is. A deacon is a person who serves the body of Christ. They take care of the sheep. They take care of the ministry. They take care of the building. They take care of all sorts of things within the body of Christ. They're servants. They serve. And so that's the idea in the Greek. It's like one who waits upon a table, a servant. It, its emphasis is on the, the work that needs to be done. And we're already in Christ as believers, but he has given us good works that we should walk in them. Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these brothers, truly you did it to me. We are serving him as we are doing service for others. In fact, uh, beautifully, this same word here used for serve is used for the angels who came in and ministered to the Lord after he was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. It says that the angels came and they diakonoed, served the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. It isn't enough, as I said earlier, to just know things about Christ. We must follow him. Read through the book of um, 1 John this week. Over and over again, uh, John teaches us, if you love me, you will obey me, and you will follow me. Uh, don't tell me you love me. Obey me. Um, I use the example in marriage. If, if I come home every night and I just tell my wife, oh, yeah, I love you, but then I treat her horribly, and I never come home at night and, and help her with any of the work that needs to be done. Is she, relieving, is she receiving my love? Is she believing what I said? I can say it all day long, but if I don't show her in my devotion, she'll never believe it. It's just a bunch of lip service he gives me. So too, Jesus is saying, don't give me your words, serve me. He says in Matthew 7, that many will say to me, Lord, Lord. He wants people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in Matthew 7, they will say to me, it was just lip service what they did. And so we see this throughout the scriptures. It's, it's following Christ in obedience, remembering to die to self, 
your old self, the, the old self that's dead and buried, was now raised to new life, zoe, in Christ Jesus. Paul talks about, in all of his letters, our, our position of truth. Know who you are in Christ Jesus. Take a highlighter or a pen and go through all Paul's letters. In him, in Christ. In him, in Christ. He wants us to know who we are because positionally, we've done it all through Christ. And then notice how the Lord Jesus closes this section. He says at the end of verse 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Wow, what a blessing. We follow and serve Christ, and we will be honored by the Ancient of Days, God the Father. Listen, this life, walking with Christ, will often involve great suffering. It will surely involve loss, even death. But I want to close today with the words of Christ because as Jesus promises, our good, good Father will one day honor those who faithfully served Him. The Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew 25, verse 31 through 40, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit at His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Jesus makes this personal in verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then Jesus says the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or you needed clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison go to visit you? Jesus will answer. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did for me. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And one day in the end, our dear Lord will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We don't deserve this honor, do we? But by the blood of Christ, we are credited Christ's righteousness, which covers all our iniquities. If you need prayers this morning, or if the Good Shepherd has opened your eyes today, we'd love to pray and talk with you. Please stand as we sing the song of invitation, Broken Vessels, Amazing Grace. <laughs>